Muslims.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning, warning. We've got to stop us. They're going to kill us all. See how the trouble you've started? Be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. Time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. Right, you tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Revolution We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyal? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given right, and we shall not give them right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. Uh, good morning. Uh, welcome to Free Association. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, I should probably say. Or hello, good evening, and welcome. If I was David Frost, which I'm not, incidentally. Uh, <laughs> I'm having a bit of a, a leisurely day today. I could have gone on a demonstration. There was a there's a demonstration been going on this afternoon in Newcastle. Uh, started at one o'clock and probably is about due to finish now. I thought about going up there. Um, I made the decision not to at about twelve noon. So within an hour of it starting, I could have gone up there because I only live probably about half an hour's walk away from where the demonstration was being held, which was the BBC, the uh, 
the television company, the local studios on Barrack Road in Newcastle. Um, I thought about it. I thought I could take I could take my smartphone up there. I could record some video, maybe use some footage on the show. And I decided against it. And my main reason for not doing that is... I'm not sure exactly what my main reason is. It just didn't feel right. It didn't feel right. It would have been a rush, and I don't like to rush. I don't like to rush particularly on the day of a show. It takes me a while to get my head in the right space to do the show and and to do the research that I need to find find what I want to play and link it together. And uh, I found a couple of a couple of things to play today. I've got Jordan Peterson. Uh, a piece he's uploaded a couple of days ago, and I've been wanting to play Jordan Peterson for a while. And, and this is, it's vitriolic, it's uh, its full of rhetoric. He's taking a, a very principled position in the way that he's speaking, and uh, he's obviously on good form again. He's been recovering from an illness for the last couple of years, and he's been a bit quiet. And uh, obviously taking part in, in his daughter's podcast, but not really doing all that much in terms of uh, content himself. But he's, he's getting closer to the point where, where he's going to be doing his stuff again. And I, I just wanted to say welcome back, Jordan. So I'm going, to, I'm going to play that piece. It's about 20 minutes, 18 minutes it is in total. 18 minutes and 7 seconds, I think it was. And then I've got a piece from the Dark Horse podcast, which was live at midnight my time. Uh, so this morning, so I was awake and I was listening, and the conversation was good. Uh, in that, there is, it's not fully formed. Uh, Dark Horse, for the people who don't know, is uh, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hain, who are both evolutionary biologists, and they they take a an evolutionary approach to to life and current events and to the vaccine and virus situation and to government and political situations. They're not, they're not hugely political, but they do have a, a take on the world that does have some built-in political viewpoints, which is fine. Everybody's got their own way of doing things. I don't necessarily agree with everything that Jordan Peterson says, and I don't necessarily agree with everything that Brett Weinstein and Heather Haying say. But I like the way they they think in some ways, and uh, I wouldn't necessarily take my my rhetoric wouldn't be as extreme as Jordan Peterson's, for example. I don't think the situation's as extreme as he's making it in the words that he's using. But I do think that there's a situation that needs to be spoken about. So taking extreme positions provokes conversation and Jordan Peterson's well aware that the rhetoric he's using is going to provoke a conversation and that's probably why he's doing it although he is personally involved as well because it's obviously affecting his job and affecting his his way of, of doing what he's what he does 
I've got that lined up now, so I might as well just go into it. So there's uh, there's about 18 minutes of Jordan Peterson. I'll have a chat with the, the chat room while this is happening. Hello, everyone. I wrote this article recently for one of Canada's major newspapers, the National Post. I'm reading it for those of you who would rather watch and listen. It's entitled, D.I.E. Must Die. This is Why. I recently resigned from my position as full tenured professor at the University of Toronto. I am now Professor Emeritus, and before I turn 60... Emeritus is generally a designation reserved for superannuated faculty, albeit those who had served their term with some distinction. I had envisioned teaching and researching at the U of T full-time until they had to haul my skeleton out of my office. Hello, everyone. I wrote this article recently for one of Canada's major newspapers, the National Post. I'm reading it for those of you who would rather watch and listen. It's entitled, D.I.E. Must Die. This is Why. I recently resigned from my position as full tenured professor at the University of Toronto. I am now Professor Emeritus, and before I turn 60... Emeritus is generally a designation reserved for superannuated faculty, albeit those who had served their term with some distinction. I had envisioned teaching and researching at the U of T full time until they had to haul my skeleton out of my office. I loved my job. And my students, undergraduates and graduates alike, were positively predisposed toward me. But that career path was not meant to be. There are many reasons, including the fact that I can now teach many more people and with less interference online. But here's a few more. First, my qualified and supremely trained heterosexual white male grad students, and I've had many others, by the way, are no longer eligible upon graduation for university research positions, despite stellar scientific dossiers. This is partly because of diversity, inclusivity, and equity mandates. My preferred acronym, DIE. These have been imposed universally in academia. Despite the fact that university hiring committees had already done everything reasonable for all the years of my career, and then some, to ensure that no qualified minority candidates were ever overlooked. My students are also partly unacceptable, precisely because they are my students. I am academic persona non grata because of my unacceptable philosophical positions. 
And this isn't just some inconvenience. These facts rendered my job morally untenable. How can I accept prospective researchers and train them in good conscience, knowing their employment prospects to be minimal? Second reason. This is one of many idiot issues of appalling ideology currently demolishing the universities and downstream the general culture not least because there are simply not enough qualified BIPOC people in the pipeline. BIPOC, black, indigenous, and people of color, for those of you not in the knowing woke. This has been common knowledge among any remotely truthful academic who has served on a hiring committee for the last three decades. This means we're out to produce a generation of researchers utterly unqualified for the job. And we've seen what that means already in the horrible grievance studies disciplines. That, combined with the death of objective testing, has compromised the university so badly that it can hardly be overstated. And what happens in the universities eventually colors everything, as we have discovered all my craven colleagues must craft die statements to obtain a research grant. They all lie, accepting the minority of true believers, and they teach their students to do the same. And they do it constantly with various rationalizations and justifications, further corrupting what is already a stunningly corrupt enterprise. Some of my colleagues even allow themselves to undergo so-called anti-bias training conducted by supremely unqualified human resources personnel lecturing inanely and blithely and in an accusatory manner about theoretically all-pervasive racist, sexist, heterosexist attitudes. Such training is now often a precondition to occupy a faculty position on a hiring committee. Need I point out that implicit attitudes cannot, by the definitions generated by those who have made them a central point of our culture, be transformed by short-term explicit training, assuming that those biases exist in the manner claimed. And that is a very weak claim, and I'm speaking scientifically here. The implicit association test, the much-vaunted IAT, which purports to objectively diagnose implicit bias, that's automatic racism and the like, is by no means powerful enough, valid and reliable enough, to do what it purports to do. Two of the original designers of that test, Anthony Greenwald and Brian Nozick, have said as much publicly. The third, Professor Mazarin Banerjee of Harvard, remains recalcitrant. Much of this can be attributed to her overtly leftist political agenda, as well as to her embeddedness within a subdiscipline of psychology, social psychology, so corrupt that it denied the existence of left-wing authoritarianism for six decades after World War II. The same social psychologists, broadly speaking, also casually regard conservatism, 
in the guise of system justification as a form of psychopathology. Banerjee's continued countenancing of the misuse of her research instrument, combined with the status of her position at Harvard, is a prime reason we all still suffer under the dye yoke, with its baleful effect on what was once the closest we had ever come to truly meritorious selection. Furthermore, the accrediting board for grad clinical psych training programs in Canada are now planning to refuse to accredit university clinical programs unless they have a social justice orientation. That, combined with some recent legislative changes in Canada, claiming to outlaw so-called conversion therapy, but really making it exceedingly risky for clinicians to do anything ever but agree always and about everything with their clients, have likely doomed the practice of clinical psychology, which always depended entirely on trust and privacy. Similar moves are afoot in other professional disciplines, such as medicine and law. And if you don't think that psychologists, lawyers, and other professionals are anything but terrified of their now woke governing professional colleges, much to everyone's extreme detriment, you simply don't understand how far all of this has gone. Just exactly what am I supposed to do when I meet a grad student or young professor hired on die grounds? Manifest instant skepticism regarding their professional ability? What a slap in the face to a truly meritorious outsider. And perhaps that's the point. The die ideology is not friend to peace and tolerance. It is absolutely and completely the enemy of competence and justice. And for those of you who think that I am overstating the case or that this is something limited in some trivial sense to the university, consider some other examples. This report from Hollywood, cliched hotbed of liberal sentiment, for example, indicates just how far this has gone. In 2020, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the Oscar people, embarked on a five-year plan, does that ring any historical bells, to, quote, diversify our organization and expand our definition of the best. They did so in an attempt which included developing, quote, new representation and inclusion standards for Oscars to, hypothetically, quote, better reflect the diversity of the movie-going audience. What fruit has this initiative, offspring of the die ideology, borne? According to a recent article penned by Peter Kiefer and Peter Savodnik, but posted on former New York Times journalist Barry Weiss's Common Sense website, and Weiss left the Times because of the intrusion of radical left ideology into that newspaper, just as Tara Henley did recently vis-a-vis the CBC. Quote, We spoke to more than 25 writers, directors, and producers, all of whom identify as liberal, and all of whom described a pervasive fear of running afoul of the new dogma. How to survive the revolution? By becoming its most ardent supporter. Suddenly, every conversation with every agent or head of content started with, is anyone BIPOC attached to this? And this is everywhere. 
And if you don't see it, your head is either in the sand or shoved somewhere far more unmentionable. CBS, for example, has literally mandated that every writer's room be at least 40% BIPOC in 2021, 50% in 2022. We are now at the point where race, ethnicity, gender, or sexual preference is first accepted as the fundamental characteristic defining each person, just as the radical leftists were hoping, and second is now treated as the most important qualification for study, research, and employment. Need I point out that this is insane? Even the benighted New York Times has its doubts. A headline from August 11th, 2021. Are workplace diversity programs doing more harm than good? In a word, yes. How can accusing your employees of racism, etc., sufficient to require retraining, particularly in relationship to those who are working in good faith to overcome whatever bias they might still in these modern liberal times manifest, be anything other than insulting, annoying, invasive, high-handed, moralizing, inappropriate, ill-considered, counterproductive, and otherwise unjustifiable. And if you think die is bad, and it is, wait until you get a load of environmental, social, and governance ESG scores. See the Vanguard website for more information. Purporting to assess corporate moral responsibility, these scores, which can dramatically affect an enterprise's financial viability, are nothing less than the equivalent of China's damnable social credit system applied to the entrepreneurial and financial world. CEOs, what in the world is wrong with you? Can't you see that the ideologues who push such appalling nonsense are driven by an agenda that is not only absolutely antithetical to your free market enterprise as such, but precisely targeted at the freedoms that made your success possible? Can't you see that by going along sheep-like, just as the professors are doing, just as the artists and writers are doing, that you are generating a veritable fifth column within your businesses? Are you really so blind, cowed, and cowardly with all your so-called privilege? And it's not just the universities and the professional colleges and Hollywood and the corporate world. Diversity, inclusivity, and equity, that radical leftist trinity, is destroying us. Wondering about the divisiveness that is currently besetting us? Look no farther than die. Wondering more specifically about the attractiveness of Trump? Look no further than die. When does the left go too far? When they worship at the altar of die and insist that the rest of us, who mostly want to be left alone, do so as well. Enough already. Enough. Enough. Finally, do you know that Vladimir Putin himself is capitalizing on this woke madness? Anna Majar Barducci at MEMRI.org covered his recent speech. I quote from the article's translation. Putin speaking. 
The advocates of so-called social progress believe they are introducing humanity to some kind of a new and better consciousness. Godspeed, hoist the flags, as we say, go right ahead. The only thing that I want to say now is that their prescriptions are not new at all. It may come as a surprise to some people, but Russia has been there already. After the 1917 revolution, the Bolsheviks, relying on the dogmas of Marx and Engels, also said that they would change existing ways and customs, and not just political and economic ones, but the very notion of human morality and the foundations of a healthy society. The destruction of age-old values, religion, and relations between people, up to and including the total rejection of family, we had that too, encouragement to inform on loved ones, all this was proclaimed progress, and by the way, was widely supported around the world back then, and was quite fashionable, same as today. By the way, the Bolsheviks were absolutely intolerant of opinions other than theirs. Putin continues, This, I believe, should call to mind some of what we are witnessing now. Looking at what is happening in a number of Western countries, we are amazed to see domestic practices, which we fortunately have left, I hope, in the distant past. The fight for equality and against discrimination has turned into aggressive dogmatism bordering on absurdity when the works of the great authors of the past, such as Shakespeare, are no longer taught at schools or universities because their ideas are believed to be backward. The classics are declared backward and ignorant of the importance of gender and race. In Hollywood, memos are distributed about proper storytelling and how many characters of what color or gender should be in a movie. This is even worse than the agitprop department of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. End of Putin's comments. This from the head of the former totalitarian enterprise against whom we fought a five decades long cold war, risking the entire planet in a very real manner. This from the head of a country riven in a literally genocidal manner by ideas that Putin himself attributes to the progressives in the West, to the generally accepting audience of his once burned, once, twice shy listeners. And all of you going along with the die activists, whatever your reasons, this is on you. Professors cowering cravenly in pretense and silence, teaching your students to dissimulate and lie, to get along as the walls crumble for shame. CEOs signaling a virtue you don't possess and shouldn't want to to please a minority who literally live by displeasure. Your evil capitalists, after all, should be proud of it. At the moment, I can't tell if you're more reprehensibly timid even than the professors. Why the hell don't you banish the human resource die upstarts back to the more appropriately named personnel departments, stop them from interfering with the psyches of you and your employees, and be done with it? Musicians, artists, writers, stop bending your sacred and meritorious art to the demands of the propagandists before you fatally betray the spirit of your own intuition. Stop censoring your thought. Stop saying you will hire for your orchestral and theatrical productions for any reason other than talent and excellence. That's all you have. That's all any of us have. He who sows the wind will reap the whirlwind. 
and the wind is rising. Okay, that's Jordan Peterson. Um, Powerful words. He's obviously spent a lot of time crafting that and, and choosing his words, choosing his language. And as a the the ultimate thing that he's talking about is a is a conflict in philosophies. Jordan Peterson is a primarily an existentialist, uh, which means that he's uh, he's got a lot of influences coming from uh, Jean Paul Sartre and Heidegger and Nietzsche to some extent. And the, the other side of the argument is primarily coming from a background in, in Karl Marx. So there's a conflict there as to, there's an op, opposing set of assumptions on either side. So inevitably people get pushed out, but, uh, I think we need to have the discussion because there are some things in Marx that are useful. There are some, there's some analysis in Marx that's useful. And there's some analysis in existentialism that's useful. We can probably drop quite a lot of both of them. And if we can find a, a synthesis of, of the two ideologies, the two, the two philosophies, in a way that's personal, in a way that makes sense, then, uh, then we're making progress of, of one sort or another. But I think he's got a, he's got a point in the, in the way that Things are moving. Uh, we need to, it's another place where there's coercion. He's talking about the university system and the coercion that's going on in that system. Uh, so coercion's part of the, of the vaccine situation that we're in as well. So we, what we need to do really, or what I need to do, because I can only, I can only speak for me, is set up enough resistance to the coercion that I don't don't have to take any notice of it. Quite honestly, I don't take very much notice of it anyway. But if it gets a bit heavier, then I might I might have to set up something that's a a system of resistance. So I need to, I need to look at that over the next couple of years about how I want to set myself up. I'm I'm 56 years old, so I need to set myself up for some kind of retirement at some point and uh, pick a pick a place that I like living and have people around me that I'll that I like having conversations with and I think that's that's possible now. There's enough people around me that I like having conversations with that I can engage with and keep a relationship going with. Some of them are online, some of them are some of them are, are in real life. But uh, really, I need a few people in real life, as well as the people online. So that's what I need to set up. It's something I need to, I need to manifest in my life, and probably a lot of other people need to do the same thing. It's building networks that aren't full of people who agree with me, people who are on opposite ends of the of the argument, on with the discussion. Discussions are more interesting if there's two, three or four different points of view in them. 
rather than everybody agreeing. Sometimes there are, there are things that everybody agrees with. But there are always nuances. There are always... We all, we all carry different things from our childhoods that, that influence our points of view. And that's what makes life interesting, is, is finding those things around, in the people around you. Working out where they're coming from. So moving on now to, uh, the Dark Horse podcast, which aired at midnight my time last night. So it's the 22nd of January, 2022. I've got a section of it ready from about 28 minutes in. I'm going to let this play probably about 20 minutes. It'll take us most of the way towards the the hour because it's a good conversation. And although it's it's not fully formed, it's it's getting in the direction of of being clear. So... And the logic's interesting, the, the way, the way Brett and Heather set out their, their thought processes I find interesting. So this is from the Dark Horse podcast. It's number 112, 112. About, about half an hour in, and I'll just let it play. Here we have. From Joe Biden on July 21st of last year on CNN. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. From Walensky, the director of the CDC, on March 29th on MSNBC of last year. Vaccinated people do not carry the virus. Don't get sick. Fauci, the NIAID director on May 17th of last year on MSNBC. When people are vaccinated, they can feel safe. They will not be infected. And Fauci again of the vaccines on May 17th again last year. They're really, really good against variants. All of these things are untrue. Some of these things were lies. Right. Um, I'm not going to claim that Biden was lying. I'll bet he just didn't know. Um, but my God, you know, we, and, and we, we keep, they keep on changing what it is they're claiming that they already said to us. And if we can't even keep track of that, then of course they're going to continue to win. And of course they're going to erect the new people who they can claim, okay, yeah, well, we got this wrong and we'll have a couple of fall guys. Like, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure a couple of people have their heads sort of metaphorically cut off. And um, and prop up some new people in the positions that already existed with the systems that already existed with all the same incentives that already existed. You, you, you got to slow down to that because people are not going to understand what's what's about to happen. Go okay. for it. Here's the problem. You've got public health elites and whatever it is that they represent. They have screwed up at uh, an unprecedented level. They've effectively crashed many of the functional systems of planet Earth. They've caused untold misery and, frankly, untold disease. I would suggest people take a look at John Campbell's video from this week talking about how many people actually died of COVID. It's quite eye-opening. But he also talks about what people did die of, things like, you know, delays in cancer diagnoses and things like this. So... The point is, this is an unprecedented catastrophe, and the natural outgrowth of an unprecedented catastrophe is a kind of collective soul-searching in which we figure out who screwed up, how it happened, what system should have been in place so it doesn't happen again, and we move forward in that way. But were that to happen, these incredibly powerful, many cases now incredibly, Incredibly wealthy elites who earned so much through this 
colossal error. Those people have everything to lose if we actually figure out what happened and install the systems that would prevent it from ever happening again. So they're now in search of anything that can save them from facing the people who were right. Right now, what that means is that there's a race that is going to be kicking off here and we're already seeing the first signs of it. And the race is for people who weren't right all along, who are now going to challenge the public health authority. Right. They're going to point out just how disastrous it's so brave. It's very brave. They're going to say these public health officials failed us, but. And then they're going to attack those of us who had this stuff right. And the idea is that the elites have an incentive now to embrace this new middle ground that is neither fish nor fowl, right? It is not on board with the public health narrative. It challenges it in very strong terms, but it also challenges the dissidents who will be accused of all sorts of defects. And the point is the elites have an interest in finding that voice. The struggle to phrase it just so is now on, and so people will be falling all over themselves. They will, some of them will know what they're doing. They're, they're jockeying for position in the new world order. Some of them will not know what they're doing. They will just detect that suddenly they're seeing articles on, on a particular theme in all sorts of places, and they will think, I could write that article, and they will write it. And so you'll have this whole new group of people in the middle, and their purpose, their purpose is to prevent meaningful change right no no no. that is the utility that's not why they exist they are taking advantage of an empty niche and they will be adopted by um the the mainstream and the elite in order to serve the purpose of the elite right well let's just say the purpose of the niche is that is to protect the elite from uh a reckoning in light of what they have done to to yeah this is reckoning insurance it's reckoning insurance but here's the other thing there's another dimension to this which is that there are are a huge number of people in the audience who aren't going to write that article they're not going to write any article but they're in a bad position right because to the extent that for a year you've been browbeating people for being on the wrong side of history and then it turns out they were on the right side of history closer to two uh well, let's just say there are people who go back two years, but mm-hmm. we've been we've been hearing these voices. And the point is, if you're somebody who's been on the wrong side of this and you were sure you were on the right side of this and you've been chastising people publicly, you've been shunning your friends and all. Mm-hmm. then the point is now you're in a very awkward position that actually mirrors the position of the elites who want to stay in power. Right. And so the point is, you've got a bunch of people who will hunt for the best phrasing of this narrative so that they can uh, be uh, pulled up into the positions of power that will decide what will be done. And what will be done is symbolic shit and nothing more. Mm -hmm. Right. You've got an audience in search of an excuse, which is to say, Mm -hmm. yes, the public health authorities did fail us, but those other people weren't right. Right. And, you know, you've got the elites and their point is, look, anything so long as it doesn't take us out of our positions of power. Right. That confluence of those three is going to result in a scramble that you're not going to see coming. And it's going to result in the promise of reform and there will be no reform. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I would suggest you go watch the excellent film, The Big Short. Mm. Not, not one of the films I'm going to recommend later, but yes, The Big Short is a, is a third film. It's, yes. it's, it's a beautiful and heartbreaking film, and pay very close attention to the end. Right? This, is, this is coming, and we could get in the road. We could prevent this, but we have to be very careful because the temptation to embrace these people who have been outside of the fray and are now going to rush in and they're going to shout at the right people, 
and they're going to shout at the wrong people and they're going to seem like they're somehow more moderate. And it's nonsense. It's strategic. Right. The people that you should be talking to are people who took a risk and said what needed to be said, even when it was almost impossible to do so. And generated predictions based on an actual understanding of the situation by deriving uh, deriving meaning from what we could see from first principles as much as possible. I think, frankly, much of what much of what I'm wrestling with at the moment is, is God, I mean, as I told you, like there's a sadness that sort of verges into rage. Um, and I've just got this deep disappointment with a lot of people who I thought were honorable and brave and insightful and full of wisdom. And um, this has gone on long enough and they have been, so many people have been unwilling or incapable, and it is often hard to determine which it is, uh, to actually investigate the evidence in front of them and generate uh, a claim or an opinion that runs in any way counter until like until yesterday, right? Like until the last couple of weeks, the last month, you know, like just about a year ago is when we saw the lab leak crumble in exactly this way. Like this is just about a year out from the lab leak narrative crumbling this way. And suddenly there were a lot of people going, yeah, but I was saying so, I was saying so. And now that's just like this dull roar and you know, some Fauci and, you know, Barrick and all and Dasik are still denying it. But it's it's you can say that now without risking getting uh, kicked off YouTube, for instance. Um, but you still you can't you know, we're, we're still demonetized. We're still at risk uh, for talking about all the rest of the things we're talking about. And the people whom I thought of as honorable and brave and insightful and full of wisdom who have said nothing that counters the mainstream narrative until like yesterday or not even yet, and who are going to somehow contort themselves into positions that make them appear to have been carefully thinking it through all along, when what has been revealed is actually the the white-coated scientism thing has confused most people who actually don't understand what science is. Most people who actually have never thought of themselves as scientists or done science or engaged with people really truthfully, honestly, with the people who are doing science really have no idea. And so they they really feel like they have no ability to assess the claims. And so we have a whole lot of people who have been claiming to assess the claims who actually are doing no such thing. And so now the narrative is crumbling and they're going to jump up on top of that smoldering pile and say, aha, yes, here I am, here I am. Like, what even are you standing on? Like, they're still going to be unable to assess the claims that they're that they're either now saying yes or true or no, they aren't, because they've revealed throughout this that, again, they're either unwilling or incapable of doing so. Well, <clears throat> we are going to have to do a better job of sorting because there are going to be very various different categories of people. I mean, hat. <laughs> well, I would say that there are certain heuristics, right? It is now going to become profitable to find that middle ground position. Of course. So you don't know anybody who adopts it now, why they're adopting it, right? You do not have evidence that they have, you know, if, if you get slightly ahead of the narrative now, but it ends up being a huge win, 
then the point is, okay, well, what is that? Right. I think that was you promoting yourself. I don't think that was you actually, you know, figuring it out. So the question is, what is the, on the other hand, the scales will fall from people's eyes more and more rapidly. Right. Right. And so it's a very different realm, but I found, uh, I adopted a policy, um, for people who came to me, this happened somewhat regularly, that people came to me after uh, the Evergreen thing and apologized, mm. right? Yeah. And they said, you know what? I got to tell you, I did not know what was going on. I called it backwards and I'm so embarrassed. And I would say, you know what? You don't owe me an apology and here's why. When you figured it out, you did the right thing, right? Mm. Anybody who does the right thing upon discovering what it actually is, we're square, and I think we need to adopt this policy generally. But the right thing includes not pretending that you always felt this way or that you were really on the side and you, you're like, I'm going to dig up something that I said or wrote or tweeted, you know, once six months ago in a sea of things. Like, no, that's not the right thing. That's cheating, and you know it. You know it. Right. So you've got, A, being honest about the fact that you've changed your position is fundamental, mm-hmm. right? Doing the right thing, and the right thing does not mean just wagging your finger at the people who screwed this up so badly. It means not wagging your finger at the people who got it right, right? Mm-hmm. That so is that's also part of the right thing. 100% yeah. fundamental. Yeah. Um, and, you know, then the question is, and this is the tough part, I think we need to figure out how to feel about the various different categories of people, right? So... I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but obviously feeling is a proxy for stuff, right? We feel because it's a quick way of actually deploying a, you know, game theoretic approach that has been refined by selection. And it's not very um, properly applied to many modern circumstances. So, for example, um, if you imagine yourself <clears throat> a thousand years ago in some circumstance, where some person delivers you a terrible insult, if you're a man, let's say, and some person delivers you a, no, we're clear on that, but um, if somebody delivers you a terrible insult, suggesting that you are, you know, a weak person, mm-hmm. it might be important that you throw a punch, because if you don't, it might imply that the person was actually accurate, and it might result in you facing a lot of uh, uh, bad stuff going forward. On the other hand, in modern times, if you're, in a bar 500 miles from home and some person that you've never seen and will never see again says something insulting, the game theory is very different, but you still have the same emotional reaction. So, I mean, this is, this is fascinating. I didn't expect us to go here. Um, the piece I'm working on for the second part of this competition as it differs between the sexes uh, for my Substack for next week is based on uh, an invited commentary that um, that I just wrote that I just was just published a week and a half ago or so in the in the journal in the scientific journal the archives of sexual behavior and it's specifically it's called something like covert versus overt um, on the different competitive styles of of women and men and you know the idea is in part. Uh, precisely this, that um, male-style competitions, so dominance hierarchies exist um, in, I, th- I think, certainly all species that can be said to have friendships, and I think pretty much all species that are social. But um, the, the way that humans are so unique, one of the many ways that, that we are unique, is that we not only, we have um, 
hierarchies in both sexes. And actually, I've only been able to find chakma baboons that also have male hierarchies and female hierarchies. Most species of primates and elephants and stuff have a dominance hierarchy in one sex, but not in the other. Um, but then in modernity, we bring it together. And, you know, we act like, oh, we can just, you know, work together and play together and everything, men and women together, as if um, as if the different hierarchical styles, the different rules by which we create and maintain social interactions with one another aren't different and as if they will just slide together easily without ever negotiating. And of course, of course, that's not going to be the case. And men, for reasons that I won't get into here, but do get into in this piece that will be published on Tuesday, um, are much more likely to um, to say, hey, man, you want to take it outside? Like, what was that? And like it's on right now here now we're doing this and it is um it, it it has hard borders in space and time it's direct it's for an audience it's there right and female style competition is much more likely to be covert to happen away from an audience to happen in fact when a person is alone but engaging in a competition that over in ecology speak you might call like scramble competition for instance and um that doesn't look like what we think of as competition. And so we have all this research claiming that, well, women aren't really that competitive. Women say they're not competitive, so they're not competitive. Well, bullshit, right? Like, this is not true at all. It just looks different. And what we see in so much of, especially 21st century version, weird modernity is basically female style dominance hierarchy tactics being adopted by everyone and everyone pretending that, well, if it's not overt male style dominance interactions, well, then it's not competitive at all. And you, you're probably imagining it. And that's the basis of a lot of the gaslighting, right? Like, oh, you're imagining it. Like, No, I'm not. That's for real. And we all know it. And frankly, if it looked like, you know, if it looked like teenage girls, then we'd see it. But because it's so-called adults doing things that really you should have grown out of it. If you were a dude, you never should have been doing it in the first place. Then we don't see it. Right. That's a good place to stop that. Uh, there's never really a good place to stop on Dark Horse, but... Uh because the, the the discussions are always interwoven, they they never have clear boundaries really around them. But they they do clips. Uh, this is this has not been up long enough for for whoever's doing the clips to to clip things. But uh, so I've just picked twenty minutes um, in the middle of the conversation. Basically, I recommend you go and have a look at it though. It's a Dark Horse podcast. This is episode one hundred and twelve. Brett Weinstein and Heather Hayen. Um, yeah, so that's that's the type of thing that I listen to, and uh, it's all. I just like to hear the way they think. Uh, in the same way, I like to hear what Joe Rogan thinks and how he thinks. So, if you want to find me, I am on social media. Uh, Dennis Barker is the name, and you'll find me on Twitter. Under that name, uh, I'm on Getter under the name Radio Projects. I'm on Podbean under the name Radio Projects. Uh, what else am I on radio, as Radio Projects? So I'm either Dennis Barker or Radio Projects, or if you do a search for Free Association Roundtable Radio Show and Podcasts on Spotify or on Player FM or or on Pandora, any of those things, on Amazon Music as well, you'll find me. 
I've got another podcast set up that I'm going to develop a little bit, which is called the Free Association Freedom of Speech podcast. It's mostly the same material, but I'm going to separate the two out. So I like to have a backup plan, uh, just in case Podbean didn't work out. I've got a Podomatic version as well. So I'm going to develop the two in different directions so there'll be less overlap. Uh, I've got one direction that I want to take the Podbean podcast and the radio show, and I can do different different things and take the Podomatic version in a different direction, and then maybe merge them together at a future date. I don't know. Well, it gives me a way of experimenting. Podbean's becoming more kind of fixed and serious, and and I've got to find a way to make money out of that one, which means that I can play on the Podomatic version and test test formats there a little bit, rather than interrupting the flow of what's happening on Podbean. Anyway, that's the idea. Uh, I don't know how well it'll work, but. Uh, the Podbean podcast has settled down for about 200, 250 downloads a day. Um, I'm looking at a way to increase that. Uh, I've had to make a decision because I've got limited funds about whether to keep the radio station going. Uh, the, ra- the radio station's been going for four years. I've decided to close it for the time being and reallocate that £40 into just other things that I'm that I'm doing, so it'll it'll pay for for renewing the Podbean podcast. It'll pay for renewing the Podomatic podcast when that comes up. It gives me a bit of money to work with. I find ways of promoting what I do. I had a good conversation yesterday with Mona Mona Radler on uh, Adventures of a Feral Hippie. So if you didn't hear that. Live, it should be in the archives probably later on today. Uh, so it was an hour's conversation, uh, the final hour of her show. Uh, I like talking to Mona. We've got good good rapport between myself and Mona. And uh, the conversation goes in, it went in a different direction to what I was expecting last night. But I ended up talking about uh, psychological processes and how how the world can be can be viewed as one large psychological process with a whole lot of sub-processes going on and sub-sub-processes. If you, if you look at it that way, it's kind of a combination of uh, Spinoza and Hegel and Fichte and, and a bit of Nietzsche thrown in for good measure. So there's a lot of combinations of various ways you can look at the process there's various ways you can look at look at the world in general. It doesn't have to be a process. It can be a it can be something else. There's a there's a lot of different philosophical ways of looking at looking at the world and universalizing and 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 the difference between a fixed version of the world and a process version of the world. Are quite profound. Uh, at the moment, I'm in the process, but at one point, I was I was looking at it from a fixed hierarchical point of view, and that's that's an interesting way to view the world as well. So part of its hierarchy, part of its process, and the two have a an interrelationship. 
Uh, it's difficult to describe, but uh, I know what it feels like, and I know what I mean. I just don't have quite have the language to express that yet. So that's another thing I need to look at. There's a lot of things on my to-do list at the moment, uh, some of which I'll get round to and some of which I won't. But uh, on a Saturday, I tend to, to pick reasonably chunky material. On the Tuesday round table, it's a bit looser. Can sometimes be a little bit more political. It can be a little bit more fun as well. So I've got I've got space to play on Tuesdays. Tuesday morning is the free association round table these days, um, which is 9 a.m. my time, 4 a.m. Eastern. And I'm looking for a crew. If anybody wants to join me on the round table uh, for a two-hour conversation and some some clips and some some topics. Um, we can work it out as we go along. As I get the crew together, the the topics will emerge from from the group of people that comes together for the round table. My previous crews moved into other things for a while, so I'm I'm happy to recruit other people. So if you want to have a conversation, get in touch with me on Skype. I'm Open Philosopher uh, Free Association or Open Philosopher Dennis Barker on Skype. Or you can email me, email me at free association radio show at protonmail.com. And I think that's pretty much it. We've got music coming in in about five seconds time. So I'm going to call that the afternoon show. Uh, thanks for listening. And uh, I'll see you on Tuesday for the round table and again on Saturday for another hour show. Cheers now. Bye bye. Barbara Jean Lindsay, The Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Hi, I'm Bill Johnson. Some consider my efforts to be an underground law school. I am not an attorney, and I do not give legal advice. I teach. That's lawful and legal. Consider yourself served. You are to appear Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, Studio A. My forte? Foreclosure and contract law. Grab your legal pad and pen. Learn a broad spectrum of law spanning administrative, criminal, family, tort, and federal law. Fools and losers cling to old cases. I dissect and comment on the latest rulings that control the courts. Don't be a loser. And if you don't appear, you will be held in contempt. Are you interested in the paranormal? Murder mystery? Real natural law? Do you enjoy interviews with amazing guests? 
can join Crip Rick every Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Revolution Radio. Studio A, freedomslips.com. Crip Rick's Welcome to the Crypt. <laughs> what the heck is the truth, Jihad? Hey, I'm Kevin Barrett, host of Truth Jihad.